Welcome to Video Store. I am Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1953 Mizuguchi film Ugetsu. So let's step into the video store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm great, Sam. Morning. Uh, Barrett, this was uh, this was a really interesting movie to watch. Um, I, I I think at this point, like my daughter is just like part of my viewing experience now. So uh, my daughter, my wife, and I all watch this movie together. Um, and, and she's just excited every week for like, okay, what's the next movie? What are we going to watch? So I haven't got her to listen to the podcast yet, but she's definitely, uh, as we were waiting for the bus today, I said, I'm going to have to talk about this movie. What questions do you have? What are things you want to talk about? So, so we had a nice, uh, a nice little conversation this morning. Um, let's start, uh, with our typical beginning. Uh, what is your history? And I'll give you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a choice of paths here. Um, mm. either what is your history with this film specifically or what is your history with Mizuguchi? Well, they're the same question, Sam, because this is actually the only Mizuguchi film I've seen. Um, a lot of his films is, uh, are lost. Uh, he, he made, he started making films in the 20s, made a lot of silent films in the 20s and early 30s. Uh, he probably made about 80 films altogether. We really don't exactly know, but dozens of them are, are lost. And so he really becomes kind of prominent in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, but Ogetsu is the only one of his films that I've seen. Um, and I watched it as part of trying to learn a little bit more about Japanese cinema. So, you know, I started with Kurosawa, but then I knew Ogetsu by, by reputation as one of the other great Japanese uh, films of the, of the 50s. So I, I've never taught the film. Uh, I've never seen it on the big screen. I've only watched it uh, on disc probably about uh, 15 years ago or, or so. So uh, as somebody who's who's definitely not as plugged into kind of the history of film, plugged into world cinema, um, I think I've probably heard the name Mizuguchi before. But in my mind, um, like when I think about Japanese filmmakers, Kurosawa is this like dominant figure that I've heard of and I've heard reference in all these different places. This is probably in part because of um, I, I was born in 1977 and grew up with Star Wars and George Lucas like to talk about Kurosawa. Um, why? Other than the fact that his that a lot of his movies we don't have, but I mean he had a run in the fifties where that was uh, before he died that was really successful in terms of like winning multiple times at the Venice Film Festival. Um, so so was very successful in that way. Why is Kurosawa's cultural footprint so much bigger? Well, that's a good question, and I think the answer is because Kurosawa made a breakthrough with Rashomon. Um, in part because what the Japanese discovered was that Western audiences were really interested in historical dramas. Uh, and that's really what Kurosawa tapped into. So when you think about a lot of the Kurosawa films that are really successful in the West, they tend to be the samurai films. Um, and Mizuguchi hadn't been doing a lot of films that were set in historical periods the way Ugetsu is. So in a way, Ugetsu was kind of a response to Kurosawa. Uh, even even Mizuguchi's film style is a bit different in, in Ugetsu than it had been earlier, although it's also very characteristic of later Mizuguchi. So I think the answer is that Kurosawa kind of got there first with the historical dramas, and the other films of Mizuguchi's you mentioned that were successful in the 50s, uh, Sancho the Bailiff would be another good example. There's another one that's set in the Geisha House. Those are also um, historical dramas. And for whatever reason, that seemed to be the element of Japanese uh, subject matter 
that the West was most interested in. So I wouldn't say that Mizuguchi necessarily piggybacked on uh, Kurosawa, but I, but I would say that what Kurosawa did in 51 with the Venice Film Festival in Rashomon really had people like Mizuguchi and his producers kind of sitting up and taking notice. And you may have noticed, of course, or viewers may notice that uh, in Ugetsu, we have two of the actors uh, from, from Rashomon uh, in Lady Basaka and uh, Genjuro, uh, who were, of course, husband and wife in, in Rashomon. Um, and also, we have the same cinematographer uh, who shot uh, who shot Rashomon is also shot Yugetsu. So there's a lot of uh, there's there's a kind of a friendly rivalry there. Um, even Mizuguchi, even though Mizuguchi was only 12 years older than Kurosawa, he was definitely the senior of the two. And Kurosawa was seen as kind of the maybe upstarts too strong a word, but he came along in the in, during the war in the mid 40s. At which point, Mizuguchi had already been making films for 15 years. Yeah, I, I feel like this movie, it's interesting um, thinking about the different, um, some of the different things that we've watched, because I really love the movies we've watched. Some of them are things that hit me instantly, even while I'm watching them. I'm like, uh, like, for example, when we watched The Passion of Joan of Arc, probably 10 minutes in, I was almost standing up watching it. I was like, this is so amazing. I will say this movie was a little bit slower burn for me, where um, I really liked it, but I didn't really know what, I what I thought about it, but it was it, instead it was a movie that just stayed with me. So I watched this on Saturday. We're recording on Thursday, and every day of this week I've thought about like this movie's just sort of um, I was gonna, I'll use the verb haunt. It sort of haunted my my mind a little bit, and I, I keep thinking about it. So so it's been it was really effective in that way. And I remember as I was yesterday as I was starting to write notes for this. My first thought was I read a bunch of stuff. I'm like, I'm not sure I know what to talk about with this movie or what to ask you. And then I wrote two pages of questions. So like it's, <laughs> it's, it's there. It just does. It didn't, it didn't slap me in the face the way some of the other movies do, which is actually, you know, as I'm reading about this seems also characteristic of this movie in a particular kind of way. Um, one of the first things that I thought of, and, you know, and this is true for, for, for Kurosawa and for Mizuguchi is, I just keep thinking about the fact my wife pointed out she, before we started watching, she she asked me what year this was made. And I said, 1953. And she said, Oh, so it's like eight years after world war two, like just how much, uh, and then this film in particular, how much war sort of haunts this movie, uh, in, 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 uh, really intentional, uh, intentional ways. Maybe that's a place to start. I mean, how do you see this movie as something impacted by, uh, the Japanese experience with war, and particularly World War II. Yeah, I think that's a good question, Sam. I, I think it, I think it really is a war movie, a, a war film, a commentary film. You know, so much of filmmaking in the late '40s, early '50s, kind of commented on war, often obliquely. You know, you had some, you had some uh, explicitly post-war films, but then you had those that I think are making their commentary in a more oblique way. And what's interesting, and I think one of the reasons why you can definitely see that that is the case is that uh, even though the film was inspired by a couple of short stories from, from Ugetsu, um, he actually, Mizuguchi actually set it in a different period than when the stories are set, because he deliberately wanted to set it during this uh, Civil War period of the 16th century. And so in, a many, in many ways, the film is quite obviously a commentary on what war does to, in, to individuals. If you see how you know the two men are affected in terms of the kind of, um, uh, greed and ambition that they conceive. And I, and I think that is seen as kind of in, in some ways the, the indirect effect of, of war. The other 
possible reason why he wanted to set the film when he did is he also wants to maybe think back to what are some traditional Japanese values that have kind of been lost or been threatened. And so in terms of this as a kind of conflict between what the husbands aspire to and what the wives want, I think that that's a way for Mizuguchi to play out kind of that conflict, to think about how his war kind of threatened our Japanese values, how his war threatened domestic harmony, the importance of the family, the role of love. Uh, those, those things, I think, are being kind of um, uh, filtered uh, through the 16th century as a way to comment on the 20th century. Yeah, I love the way that this is this is a war movie without the main characters, with the exception of uh, Tobii, who like wants to be a a samurai. Like the people in this are not the people fighting the war; they're not the soldiers. Um, uh, there's a quote from Mizuguchi as he was talking. Um, this is from one of the articles that I read. He was uh, talking with his um, with one of the the screenwriter uh, uh, Yoshikata Yoda uh, about this, and he said. Uh, the feeling of wartime must be apparent in the attitude of every character. The violence of the war, the violence the war unleashed on by those in power on a pretext of national good must overwhelm the common people with suffering, moral and physical. Yet the commoners, even under these conditions, must continue to live and eat. This theme is what I especially want to emphasize here. How should I do it? So this is fr from a conversation that that he had with the um, with the screenwriter in terms of thinking about like how does this affect the people? Um, you know, which is uh, I think also interesting to think about. Again, eight years after uh, after World War II, you know, thinking about not just war, but what does this do to us? Um, now, of, of all the things you said, there are so many pathways I want to take. Um, maybe we'll start with the sort of the idea that both uh, the both of the husbands in the film as you talk about like they're at the beginning of the movie they're motivated by this ambition right and they see the war as an opportunity for that i mean uh uh Jinjuru says you know war is good business mm -hmm. and and I, is he selling to both sides of the of, of the war i it was it was unclear like because they go to one place at the beginning and then they're like now we'll go to this other place and i couldn't couldn't quite tell that but but there is this sense of at a time like this is when I can when I can make my fortune, uh, and obviously Toby, I wants to be a uh, wants to be a samurai. Um, but what's interesting about this is it made me think of uh, sort of the Greek worldview, the Greek kind of tragic worldview. And I remember one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite professors and colleagues, David Williams, when he would lecture on the Greek worldview and talk about Greek tragedy, he would he always framed it in terms of tragedy is about stuckness it's about being stuck where if i do this mm -hmm. i will bring on these bad things but if i do this other thing i will bring on this other set of this other set of things or where it's like there is there is no right choice so what i found interesting about this movie is that it doesn't seem like it's a cautionary tale about ambition because i even asked my daughter this morning i said what do you think would have happened if they didn't go to the city and she said well they would have been killed by the soldiers uh in, in the war likely and it's like yeah it, it, this isn't about don't be ambitious during times like this because it, and this is this goes back to that quote is like the war is unleashed by the people on, in power but it affects these folks no matter what so there there is this sort of underlying tragedy there too where uh no matter what they do their world is going to be um affected by war and probably haunted by the ghosts of war well i'm gonna okay so I, i'm gonna i'm gonna disagree a little bit about that sam but 
Before I do that, I want to pick up on something you said earlier, which is just to remind our listeners that one of the reasons I wanted to watch this film was because of its uh, influence on uh, First Cow. Uh, and so, as you were saying earlier, this notion that um, we are not looking at the, it's during wartime, but we're not looking at the soldiers, we're not looking at the leaders, we're not looking at a political structure, we're looking at the people living on the margins trying to do the best they can, which is exactly one of the, one of the ways in which I think this film um, influenced First Cow. Um, I, I, I think the notion of stuckness and tragedy is interesting, but the, the, the reason I'm going to push back just a little bit on that is that um, one of the key scenes in the film is after Genjiro has decided that now is the chance to make his fortune, uh, you have him at the wheel and uh, his wife is turning the wheel and their son is coming in trying to get attention. Uh, and he's very irritable because this is making it difficult for the wife to turn the wheel. And the wife has been saying to him all along, you know, it, it's nice that you bought me these fine things, but what I really care about is that you thought enough about me to bring this home or what I really want you know, is for us to kind of be the, to be a happy family again. Um, now, it, it may be that's not possible. Maybe, as you say, that if he stays there, the soldier's going to come along and kill him anyway. But I do think at the same time that uh, Mizuguchi is upholding this notion of some kind of domestic harmony, uh, some kind of valuing of the family unit over the, over the larger uh, social structure. I, I do think that that's kind of there at the same time. I mean, bo both things may be true, but I do think there is that emphasis on what's oh. lost because of his desire to make a good fortune. I 100% agree. That's actually the next thing I wanted to talk about is, I, is that I think embedded in that is another uh, sort of tragic piece of this story is there in a uh, well, I'll, I'll blame I'll blame the husbands, but it's probably in both directions because this is probably a human thing. Is the inability to really they love each other like they they love each other dearly, but their inability to like hear each other or or especially Ginger's. I mean, the 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 scene when he comes back and he's so excited the first time he comes back, and he's so excited with the money that he has and he like he wants her to hold it and he shows her the kimono that that he gives her and she's like showing him like gratitude like oh this is this is great thank you but i don't want this mm -hmm. and and then when you see him in the the bigger city and he's again imagining he's looking at silks and kimonos and he's imagining like buying this for his wife and it i love how that first scene sets it up so well that that you're like i wanted to scream at him at that point it's like she doesn't want that she wants you to come home and but so but but they're just i mean it made me think of you know just that we um we all, I, I don't really know much about it and I'm not really into like the love languages thing, but it's almost like a version of that. It's like, she wants love expressed in a particular way. And in his mind, this is how I can express love. And maybe that's a, uh, a human thing. Maybe that's a cultural thing. Maybe that's a gendered thing to be like, I need to be the provider who provides you with um, sort of these finer things in life, right? And, she's, and, and she doesn't want that. And then on top of it, as you point out, their son is, is this other like moon that's orbiting this and, and it's, and you know, you want to see his relationship with his son, but he, you're right. He kind of like, there's this, this um, single minded focus on this is, this is how I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do for you instead of like, I'm, and I will say as somebody who's a workaholic, like this is always things like this are always convicting to me is like, Oh, how often am I, am I the person at the potter's wheel you know, or my version would be sitting in my office instead of being, 
you know, uh, three blocks away at my house with my kids, you know? And so, so that, that stuff hit me pretty hard as well. I think both of those things are absolutely at play here. Well, it's a little, it's a little uh, eerie to me, Sam, that we are on the same wavelength with the love languages because that's exactly what I was going to point out. And I'm not a, you know, I'm not a big thing about love language, but I do understand what it, you know, the, the concept is that, you know, the husband thinks that the wife wants gift and what, and because and, my wife is this way. My wife is not a gift person. My wife is a time person. The way you express love with is to spend time together. Uh, and, and that's what she wants, and he wants to buy her good stuff. Um, so that's that's not really what, what she's looking for. I, I will say, though, um, that I think what's happening is, it, it, this is an element often of, of tragedy, of course, which is irony, right? That the, the very thing that he does, or he is doing, in order to express his love for her, which is selling these pots in the market, and, of course, allowing himself to be led astray by Leader Wasika, um, because, you know, he, that's a good sale, right? He's, he's not interested in her necessarily, although we're not sure to what degree she sort of enchanted him when she goes to buy the pots. That's not really very clear, but he obviously doesn't go after her because of any attraction to her. He goes after her because he's looking for the money for the pots. So ultimately he gets led astray by this ghost because of his love for his wife, but that ultimately is how he ends up losing his wife. Uh, so that to me is, that's at least an, an, an irony and perhaps a tragic one. Yeah, and and I, I actually love the I love the way the seduction scene works, which is about her kind of puffing him up as a great artist, right? She's, yeah. which is funny because even as I got to that scene, I mean, this is before sort of her real identity is is revealed to us. I, she started talking to him, and I thought, wait, she's this rich person, and and she's aware of his pottery, and I'm like, what is this? Like, you know, and and you know, and she's talking about how you know, how her father had told him about this great, you know, these great works and all that. And it's just, and, and, and so that was really interesting is that, that the seduction isn't like a sexual seduction, but it's an, it's a, it's seducing him in terms of his ambition, both in terms of money, but also in terms of like recognition for his work and his art, uh, in that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Another thing that uh, that a lot of the things that I read uh, talked about was how much this film is also about sort of gender roles uh, and expectations, and it made me wish that I knew more about his other films because I it, it seems like, and I could be wrong, it seems like this is something that he is not an infrequent topic for him in terms of thinking about the um, sort of the role of women or the the plight of women in in society. Yeah, I don't know a lot about that, Sam, but I but I do know that um, one of the autobiographical elements of this film, and maybe his interest in gender roles that I also had read about, was that evidently his his older sister um, was kind of sold into a, into into a geisha house to help support the family, and so you know it's important that in this film, obviously that happens to Tobe's wife. You know, she ends up as a I mean, geishas aren't always synonymous with prostitutes. Sometimes it is in the Western imagination. But, you know, she ends up being prostituted. And there may be this kind of residual guilt on the part of Mizuguchi about the way that his sister was evidently prostituted in order to support the family. So I think there's that, that sense of how women are, 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 are used. And, you know, in the film, there's, you know, the only woman with any kind of power is this ghost whose power seems to be somewhat malevolent um but mm -hmm. at the same time she has power because she's no longer living 
Right. Well, and, and, and I mean, another biographical piece to that is the reason the family needed money is because his father was, seems mm-hmm. like was a somewhat successful business person. And then through ambition and a bad business deal, like the, the family fell into poverty. So, so that, that, uh, whatever happened in the business led to her having to suffer for that. Cause presumably that was not her, uh, the trajectory of her life up until that point. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and that seems, that seems definitely, um, within this film, um, the, the title of the film, Ugetsu, I was, I did, I was looking at a little bit to see like, what does this mean? And, um, uh, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this. So here's, and maybe you found other, other ways it's described. So I saw it described as, uh, the pale and mysterious moon after the rain or, uh, be, or being unable to see the moon because of the rain, huh. which are two different ways to think about that uh that phrase or yeah uh, so uh, do you have thoughts about kind of what this title is speaking to now it's it's the title comes from one of the collections of stories i think right or yeah. one of the stories yes yeah wait yeah, collection uh ugetsi monogatari um so ooh, I, I gosh i wish my son were here he's speaks japanese um who is rain getsu is moon so it's rain moon um, and as you know, it's translated a number of different ways. But one one commentator I read about that I listened to actually on the uh, Criterion uh, disc talks about uh, the rain and the moon is representing a kind of a dialectic, uh, and you could think about that in terms of the the way the film is. I get you know you could actually call this kind of a magical realist film, uh, and not just a ghost story. So you know the the rain the rain is uh, is very material of this world and the moon and the moonlight is kind of the uh, the other world. So it's a notion of this dialectic between the natural and the supernatural, between the dead the dead and the living. Because you know one of the things that's really interesting about this film is I knew from watching it before that Lady Basaka is a um, is a ghost, and yet she and her attendant you know show up in this marketplace walking among all the other living people. And, and it's really interesting because you're, you're never quite sure whether only he sees them or not. Um, you, you know, you don't see anybody else reacting to them. He, he, he deals with them. Um, but this notion that, you know, rain and moon are kind of um, in, this, in this, both a natural and supernatural relationship. Uh, and, you know, one of the great, great scenes in the film is crossing the lake uh, in that really eerie mist that Mizuguchi uh, creates and you have the sense that you're in kind of a dream uh, you're and so there's like there's this really thin line between uh, what is natural or what is supernatural what is living and dead what is what is real and what is what is imagined so I think the title insofar as I understand it kind of gets at that sort of juxtaposition or dialectic well that's the best description I I, I heard so thank you that was that was really great and I, and I I love that the scene how the scene with the boat too, because they even it that is it in terms of sort of the visual filmmaking, it's it's gorgeous, right? And it's mm-hmm. and it is it it does feel like they are crossing, potentially crossing over into something when they're on that lake. And their first comment when they see the boat, the other boat, is that it's a ghost or it's a ghost boat. Um, and then you find out that there is a person there, but even that person seems if you told me later that person was a ghost, I'd be like, sure. Like I, I'm at this, at that point, I'm open to, to any, uh, to, to kind of any of those things. And that kind of leads into thinking about, uh, Mizuguchi's filmmaking. Cause the other thing that I read a lot about, and I will say, this is the thing that most makes me want to rewatch this movie 
um because i i wasn't I, I usually pay attention to to shots in movies um because i'm interested especially uh in in long kind of tracking shots or flowing shots and this is there's a lot of camera movement in here but i really want to rewatch this and think way more specifically about the camera because so much of what i read is kind of um more formalist stuff about what he's doing with the camera uh, and a lot of description about uh the camera working like a a scroll painting where you know instead of a lot of cuts there's a lot of movement even movements from scene to scene seemingly without cuts you know in the way that a a story unfolds on a scroll in that way and um i wish i could say oh yeah those stand out to me they stand out to me because i read about them <laughs> but it, but when i was watching it i think i was paying so much attention to what was happening that i missed some of that visual stuff and i really want to go back and see that yeah he uh, the, the dogma of one scene, one cut, um, as, as much as possible. Um, you know, so yes, you get a lot of long takes, you get a lot of fluid camera movement. Um, some of it is Hollywood-like editing, but a lot of it is not. You don't get a lot of, uh, you know, um, reaction shots, or not a lot of, not a lot of close-ups. Um, one of the moments, of course, we have to talk about one of the most, fam- probably the most famous moment in the film. Uh, in terms of the camera work is when Gajuro uh, returns to to, the, to his uh, home and initially it looks like it's abandoned, right? And he runs around, he looks, he doesn't see anything and then he runs around again and when he comes around the second time, there she is and the fire is on and, and, and um, you know, this was done without any kind of digital, uh, digital I mean, so somehow, uh, and no visible cut, right? So somehow in that, 15 or 20 seconds, whatever it is, they managed to move her into the into the frame, light the fire, uh, provide lighting for that. It, it, it's, it's a completely bravo shot. And yet what's interesting is that you don't necessarily notice it. It just seems so natural. In fact, I have to confess, Sam, that I had remembered that shot differently. Uh, I, I had thought it was a continuous pan. And, and, and after I watched the film, as the credits were rolling, I thought, well, where was that great shot I was waiting for? And I actually had to go back and rewatch it and realize, oh, because he did it differently than I was expecting, I hadn't noticed. But then when you pay attention, it's, it's, it's remarkable. But that's, I think the fact that he does it so beautifully and so, uh, so smoothly is why you actually don't kind of sit back and go, oh, wow. Uh, but then when you go back and watch it again, you do realize it's really pretty amazing what's happening. Well, and, and, and also the way, I mean, the the thing i do i do remember a lot is just the the amount that the camera moves where we would normally see a cut and instead it like pulls back or it pulls in and yeah. and so so you're getting characters moving around and you, and it feels like well that's a separate shot but you realize well that's actually not a separate shot um and i think in the the scene where he's in the bath like i think that actually even transitions from scene to scene seemingly mm-hmm. like it's just one one long uh one long shot and and that that stuff was was I loved I loved that and that's um, you know I will come for the story but I will stay for like digging into that stuff because I think that that's that's the thing that so much makes me want to go back and look at this um, look at this again. Um, one thing we haven't actually talked a lot about is the other storyline, right? There is there is the the Genjuru storyline, and this is a there's a couple short stories kind of pieced together here. Um, but then there's the uh, the Tobii Ohama storyline. Um, mm-hmm. so, so so 
Uh, do you have thoughts on this? Now, what's one of the things that I found interesting is that the, uh, so again, talking with my daughter this morning, she, she said, she talked about the ending of the movie and she's, she was like, she says, well, I'm happy that at least one of the couples like kind of got back together at the end. And I said, well, that's actually not what he wanted, but the studio, the studio pressed him to be like, there's gotta be one of these has to end a little bit better. And it's not that it ends particularly well, but it ends far better than, you know, maybe the others, the other story. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that that storyline really actually doesn't come much out of Ugetsu. Um, one of the other sources that um, Mizuguchi was was influenced by was um, the French writer Maupassant, and there's a uh, there's a story by Maupassant uh, called the Decore from the late 19th century, uh, and that has a similar plot line with a man who is ambitious. Uh, and doesn't realize that uh, his wife is actually committing adultery with the person who may enable him to achieve his his, his goal. So it's not as though he's followed it slavishly, but that sort of inspired that idea. And so, you know, I, I think it's a pretty it's a pretty clear you know social commentary about the notion, obviously, that you know what is the man willing to sacrifice for uh, for his for his you know, for his ambition. And what's interesting about that is. Unlike the Genjuro story, right? With Genjuro, there is this notion that he is actually trying to do something good for his wife. Whereas with Tobai, it's he has no interest in her concern about what he's trying to do. He's completely self-centered, um, and in fact, his his return to her only comes at the significant price of her social abasement. You know that she actually has to. She's actually raped and then turns to prostitution. And it's only at that point that he realizes what he's done. So, yeah, isn't that great, right? He finally comes around, but at what cost to her? And you think about the kind of social shame that she has uh, suffered. Um, it seems like a pretty big price for the wife to pay for the husband to realize how foolish he's been. Yeah, and I even found it interesting how he... Um... Uh, how he managed to to raise himself up, you know, among the samurai was, you know, was by this big lie, really, right? Like he 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 basically steals the work someone else does, and then you hear him. Uh, I, I love the scene where you see this guy who hasn't really done anything, and he's in when they're in the the brothel, and he's making this big speech about what it takes to be successful, and you're just like, none of this is your story at all, and and and. And and just you know how how even artificial some of that uh, that uh, pomp and arrogance you know is uh, I, I found I I found that really really great as a lead up to then and you you knew once they walked in there you're like oh his wife's gonna be here like you just you knew that and and and, and you know in some ways it's like well that makes the story feel predictable but that actually I, I like that that plays into the sort of fable quality of this where you just it feels like fated that of course he's going to walk into this place. And of course he's going to see this. So even the fact that you know it before it happens makes it better. Yeah. And, and, and I think it introduces, we talked about the film having, having irony or commenting on commenting on the war, world war two. I think it introduces, it does introduce an element of social satire as well. Uh, you know, when you see him on this horse leading this train of attendants and you realize that he's done nothing to deserve any of this, um, it may be a bit of uh, Mizuguchi's poke at the quote ruling class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it's at most right place at right time, and uh, yeah. Uh, one other one one last thing uh, that I read as I was uh, talking about this, and um, this was a theory from a uh, professor uh, Robin Wood 
um, mm. was talking about Genjiru as a potter and like the different stages of him as an artist. And, and she was arguing that this reflects Mizugu- the stages in Mizuguchi's filmmaking. So, um, so she says at the beginning, it's a, the creating pottery is a commercial enterprise, mm-hmm. right? He's doing it to make money. And then it moves when when he's with Lady Wasaka, it moves uh-huh. to sort of pure aesthetics, right? Like the, the sort of artistry, of, uh, you know, maybe formalist in that way. And then um, by the end, it's uh, done in a style to try to reflect and understand life, mm-hmm. um, you know. So uh, I, I thought that was I thought that was interesting. I'm I'm never the type of person who's going to make observations like that because I don't my brain doesn't connect that way. But when I read that, I thought well, that's really interesting. You know, I, I hadn't thought of I hadn't thought of that. It, it, it is interesting because I think in a way it actually is a very I, I think that those are stages, but they're also all true at the same time. Because I think that's what's interesting about film, right? I mean, you never can talk about film without talking about, you know, how much did it cost to make? Who went to see it? You know, who pro- who produced it? Did it make a profit? Was it popular? It's really hard to, um, you know, there are filmmakers who seem to try to make films with no uh, no concern for audience or 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 profit. But most most films we think of in terms of they are mass produced and they are made for people to come see. So they are like pottery in that respect, but they can also be, be beautiful works of art and they can also express deep values. So I think it's kind of, it's th- those things are successive, but then they're accumulative or creative. Well, absolutely. Because, because the pot, the, the pottery they're looking at, because he doesn't make pots when he's with Lady Wasaka, but the pottery they're looking at is the pottery he was making as a commercial enterprise and then now framed in this other way, it is about sort of this as art. It, he's, it's, it's not something new that he's doing. He hasn't started doing something different. But I, and I really do love that this ends with him back at the potter's wheel again, um, you know, towards well, the end of that movie. In that context, he says the value of people and things truly depends on their setting. Mm-hmm. Which makes me think a little bit about maybe this is, maybe this is a big stretch. It takes me back to, to First Cow. Where where King Luke where King Luke says I, I I believe different things in different places, um, right? It's this it's this notion that the context makes uh, says a lot about the value of something. I mean I mean think think about something like um, if, if I make make this connection, think about um, Keats's Ode on the Grecian Urn, right? You take this Grecian Urn and you put it in a museum, and everybody says, oh how beautiful it is, but it was made in order to hold some kind of liquid. It, it was made for, uh, as Alice Walker says in one of her stories, it was made for everyday use. Uh, and yet at the same time, we look at it as a work of art. Well, it's both. It's both. That's really, I, I like that. I have, I have lots of friends um, who are uh, professional, semi-professional potters. And uh, it's interesting because one of them talks about how uh, as much as he loves it when people like buy the things that he makes and like, they love them because of they're beautiful, but then they like put them up on a shelf and he's like, no, no, like, if I make you a plate, I want you to eat off the plate. Like it is about the, like for, for him, it is about like this as the, this as a, a, a used object that's part of your life. Right. So, um, so he made us a set of like a full, a full dinner set um, in our, uh, for, our, he was in our wedding. So for our, as our wedding gift, like this enormous. And um, so he referred to, you know, when you get married, you often get like your fine China as one of the things you register for. And he said, this is, this is your, so that you have the good China. He says, this is the bad China. This is the China that I want you to use constantly. When you have people over, I don't want you to be nervous about this. And he said, don't worry about if it breaks. Like if it breaks, I can make you another one. Like I want this to be part of your life. 
Um, and it, I thought about him a lot as I was watching, uh, especially the pottery stuff in this movie. Well, me too. My, my, my daughter is also kind of an amateur potter. It's, a, it's an avocation for her. And I have several mugs that she's made me uh, and they're beautiful, but they are also very useful. And every morning I drink my coffee out of one of the mugs that uh, Elspeth made for me. That's awesome. Are there other things you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah, the other thing I want to, a couple of other things I want to talk about, um, Sam. One is I just want to say that um, when I was reading about it, one of the critics I read pointed out that, put put it in a class with several other films that you and I have watched, just in terms of it as a beautiful example of black and white cinematography. Uh, and, notion, and mentioned two other very different films, the films that we've talked about, Citizen Kane uh, and Persona which is another film you really love. Just, and I think that's true. This, this to me, is a film that would absolutely not work in color. Uh, there's just too much going on with it. Uh, the black and white actually creates, I mean, there's nothing like black and white for shadows and mist and all, and, and the whole feeling he's, he's creating. The, the other thing I want to point out, and I actually did not find any, 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 I didn't look at any detailed articles about the film, but the little bit that I looked at, nobody talked much about the music in the film. Um, and I, I wanted to say just a couple brief things about that. The opening music, that really kind of strange, eerie music is a, is a form called, and I'm probably mispronouncing this, called gagaku, which is a music that's very typical of the royal court of the time mm -hmm. at which the film is set. And so that's setting up an interesting contrast. The other thing I want to mention is that music is very prominent in the film. There's a lot of songs that are sung, and that's what I didn't find many people talking about. I'm sure there's some good articles out there if I looked for them. But, you know, one of, one of the songs um, says, I think it says they're crossing the lake. Uh, the song that she's singing, uh, one of the key lines is, this world is a temporary abode, uh, which is one way to kind of reflect on the relationship between the spirit world and the, uh, and the natural world. Um, one of Lady Wasaka's songs, the, the lyrics are, love has driven me mad. Um, uh, she also sings, the finest silk of cho choicest hue may change and fade away as with my life. So to me, the songs are actually underlying one of the themes of the film, which is, in a sense, you could say the evanescence of life. And even though we tend to see the spirit world as, uh, as insubstantial, in some ways, those songs suggest the spirit world is what persists. Uh, and it's the human world that ultimately uh, fades away. Um, so I really like that dimension of the film. That's not a dimension that we see in First Cow, but that is something you definitely have here. Absolutely. Uh, anything else before we get to next week's movie? Uh, one more thing. Uh, at the end, as uh, Genjuro was hearing uh, Miyagi's voice, uh, she says a very key thing. She says, your, your delusion has come to an end you are again your true self. You finally become the man I've hoped for. Hmm. So that's another way in which I think Mizuguchi introduces a kind of, that there is a lesson learned. He is going to be a good father to the son. And that last beautiful shot where you have her grave and then the camera pans up and you get the whole landscape. There's a sense that something has, something valuable, something learned has come out of this experience. Absolutely. I loved this movie. I and and like I said, it was a, it was a slower burn. If you had asked me on Saturday afternoon, I just would have said I I just don't I don't I think I liked it, but I don't know what to make of it. And um, I will say one of the things that this whole project has taught me is to like watch something, let it kind of soak in, go read some stuff about, and, and be okay if you 
walk out of something and say, I'm not sure. I don't know what I like, like, I don't know exactly how I want to process this. And, you know, and I'll go and seek out things and read. And then, you know, often I, I haven't had a chance with this yet. Often I will go back. I've rewatched a lot of the things that we've watched here um, for that reason is like, well, now I have a, some, some more, uh, a little bit different eye to bring to it. And, and it's really been wonderful. So this is, this is definitely a movie that I want to go back to. And I, and I'm curious about uh, trying to watch some of the, at least some of those other films of his that exist. Um, you know, some of those uh, mid 1950s films. So what no, do you I, have? Oh, go ahead. I, I agree. I agree. It, it's not a film when you finish it, where you say, Oh my gosh, I've just watched one of the greatest of all Japanese films. But you, you keep going back to it. And that's how I think, you know, great films are, are like great works of art. Right? You read mm -hmm. them the first time for the plot and the characters, and then you start looking at them for the artistry. Absolutely. So, uh, okay, so we're going to stay in the 1950s. We're going to do, um, uh, we're going to stay with foreign films for one more week. And uh, I want to do the second film that uh, Kelly Reichert mentioned as an influence on First Cow. And I want to do this because in the intro, of, uh, of full disclosure, it's one of those classic films that I have never seen. Uh, I've always wanted to see. Um, I started watching. I saw the first half hour of it this past week. I didn't get, get any deeper than that. But it's um, Satrajit. I'm not going to say this right. Satrajit Rai. Uh, it's spelled R-A-Y. Uh, Ray, but pronounced Rai from what I understand. Uh, it's his first film, uh, Patera Panchali. Uh, P-A-T-H-E-R-P-A-N-C-H-A-L-I. Uh, about the same period, 1955. Uh, it's the film that made Rai's reputation. It was the first Indian film that kind of made a big impact on uh, the international scene. In fact, that's one of our themes, I think, um, Sam, is that the 1950s, really beginning in some respects with Rashomon, the 1950s is really the time when the West started paying attention to films from other parts of the world. Uh, so. Uh, Japan, and then in this case, India. Uh, it's another one of these kind of quiet films. It's a domestic film. Uh, it's not going to blow you away, um, but it's uh, it's the first film in a trilogy called the Apu Trilogy that Rai made. So um, uh, it's available in a nice Criterion edition uh, again. So uh, that's what I want to watch uh, next week. Oh, I am I am thrilled. I'm very excited uh, excited for this. Barrett, that's all the time we have. This has been really fantastic. We are rapidly approaching uh, 50 films watched, which I can't believe. We're almost we're almost to our one-year mark um, of doing this. Uh, this was a great one, and uh, like I said, this is one I'm definitely going to go back to. So uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can e email us, uh, channel3900 at gmail.com, or go to videostorepodcast.wordpress.com. You can find all of our episodes there. Um, they're organized pretty nicely around, uh, around decades. So you can find, find films that way. I've also been, um, on letterbox. I've been each week. I, I created an account for video store and I've been, uh, keeping the diary of the films that we've watched and there's links to the podcasts, uh, in there as well. We will be back next week to talk about Patir Panchali in the video store. <laughs>